we're about to read the Bible in just a moment. Um, we believe here at City Light that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, so Adrian is going to come up and read for us. Reading from Luke 23, uh, 26 to 46. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, uh, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Uh, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that had never bore and the breasts that had never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they were crucified with him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals uh, who were hanged who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Uh, and, we indeed just, and, we, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy, the lead pastor here. It's really good to have you with us on Good Friday and to be reflecting on the cross and what that means. And there really is just one clear point from the readings this morning and, and what we're looking at in the story of Jesus and the two criminals who are hung with him. And it's this, that if the cross means anything, it means that God looks upon you and upon every soul of a sinner with compassion. The story of um, Jekyll and Hyde is one that you might be familiar with. The, originally, the, the story was titled The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it starts with an adjacent character, a lawyer named Mr. Utterson, who's on a stroll with a friend who begins recounting to him an incident that happened earlier in that week or month. And he starts by saying, um, look, I don't know if you heard, but there was this guy called Edward Hyde, and he was walking along the street, and a small child, a girl, bumped into him. And furious, he turned around and pushed her over and trampled on her. 
Now, this obviously caused a massive scene, and so people were trying to get at him, and he kind of sneakily sort of disappeared and got out of the scene. But along came a guy called Dr. Jekyll, who came and calmed everything down and paid the, the family a kind of a, I guess, a penalty or some kind of recompense for what had happened to let everything kind of smooth over and to, to dissipate the crowd. And what surprises Mr. Artisan is that he knows Dr. Jekyll. He's a client of his. But what surprises him even more is that he knows that Dr. Jekyll has left all of his will, all of his inheritance, to Edward Hyde. And so now he's worried about his friend. He's worried that his friend is caught up with some nefarious character. And so he goes to him, to Dr. Jekyll, and he says to him, Hey, look, I don't know if you know about this Edward Hyde, but he's bad news. You really don't need him in your life. I really don't think he should be in your will, especially. And then at that point, Dr. Jekyll makes some kind of vague excuses and then sort of slinks away and, and ends up sort of ignoring his advice. But the story takes a more serious turn when, doc, when Edward Hyde then actually kills someone. And there is a manhunt for him and all of the city is basically turned over trying to look for this guy. And then at this point, Dr. Jekyll disappears as well. And in trying to look for them, Mr. Artisan eventually comes across a letter that explains the whole situation. Dr. Jekyll explains to his lawyer and friend that what has happened was that he was experimenting with an elixir and at this point he realized that he could transform into this other person called Edward Hyde. That it kind of completely malformed his figure, but not just his figure but his temperament and he became completely morally unrestrained. And it became to him a kind of a thrill ride that he engaged with more and more until things got worse and worse and worse. And at that point it becomes clear to Mr. Utterson why it is that Jekyll had compassion on Hyde, it's because they were the same person. And it's expected, isn't it, that if you're going to have compassion on anyone, it would be on yourself. And so here's a question that's worth asking. Is there anyone who could be more compassionate towards you than yourself? The answer of the cross on Good Friday is yes. There is a God who is more compassionate towards you even than yourself. Because ultimately, often when we are compassionate towards ourselves, it's not really compassion. In this story, he isn't, Jekyll isn't compassionate to Hyde. He's lenient. And in fact, it ends up in disaster. And often when we are compassionate to ourselves, it's more that we deny certain things or we minimize certain things. But there is a God who sees us as we are, who knows the very intentions of our heart, and yet still loves us enough to die for us. And that's the story that we're diving into this morning. But before we get to the story of the cross and how Jesus ended up there, strung up between two criminals, we need to understand a story that Jesus told so that people would understand what happened when Jesus goes to the cross. And it's a parable that Jesus tells, a little story with a meaning to it, in Luke chapter 18, and it starts at sentence 9. And here we get the context for him telling this story. In Luke 18, 9, it says this, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Well, they sound like an absolute joy to be around, don't they? Jesus was speaking to a crowd, and it doesn't say exactly who they were, but it explains what they were like, what they think about themselves, God, and other people, because those three things are connected. It says they trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they looked down on everyone else. The word righteous means right with God, and in the Jewish culture it was understood what that meant. And here there are a group of people who believe that they are right with God based on what they do. 
that they have done enough, that the way things work is that God has a set of rules, like tick boxes, and if you just check all the right boxes, then you'll be declared righteous. And because of that, they also believed that there were people who were unrighteous, who had failed the moral test, who themselves were rejected by God. And this really is the operating definition for religion. I, if I obey, then I'm good. If I disobey, then I'm bad. And so he's speaking to a group of people who were pretty confident that they were the good guys. And the reason that this matters is because it affects how they see the whole world. If you see the world from this kind of religious worldview, then the world is broken into two halves. There are good people who keep the rules and are right with God, and there are bad people who don't, who are to be looked down upon. And so Jesus says this parable is for those who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. And so then he's going to tell a story that is going to shatter their worldview. And he does it by bringing two different worlds together. Look what he does next. In 18.10, the next sentence, it says, Two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, to modern ears, that doesn't sound particularly extraordinary, but to ancient ears, that is incredible. You have the two kind of contrasting figures coming together before God, so they're going to the temple, and we're going to hear their prayers so we're going to get an insight into how they think about themselves, about God and the world. And the first is a Pharisee. And Pharisees in their culture were, were kind of minor celebrities. If you were to ask the average person on the street, you know, if you believe that there is a God who is going to judge all people at one point, who's going to be most likely to be okay on that day? And most people would have said, if anyone's going to be all right, it's the Pharisees. They were the most fastidious in keeping the law. They loved the law so much that they even came up with their own rules to add to the law just to show how much they loved rule keeping. They followed the commands of God as they believed to the nth degree. If God commanded fasting, they'd fast extra. If God command, commanded tithing, which is giving away a tenth of what you earn, they tithed absolutely everything, even down to their herbs. They were fastidious. They were the holiest guys around. And then the tax collector as at the opposite end. A tax collector was seen as someone who was not only morally reprehensible, but someone who was also had betrayed their own people. A tax collector would have been a Jewish person who was now working for the Romans, which was bad enough on its own. But on top of that, they, they extracted tax from their own people, which again, on its own, would have been bad enough. But what tax collectors had a reputation for was not only extracting the tax that they needed to in order to give to Rome, but also on top of that to extract whatever they wanted for themselves because they wielded the rule of law and if you disobeyed them, they could get soldiers to come and kick down your door and take it by force. And so these, these men would take more than even the Romans were, were extracting from their own people. They were seen as the worst of the worst. People hated them. And so Jesus brings these two characters together in one story and he puts them in a temple, and he gets them to pray. And first, we hear the prayer of the Pharisee. And look at how he prays. It says, The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The Pharisee starts the prayer with, God, I thank you. And so it sounds very religious and very humble and very pious and very God-centered. But I don't know if you noticed in the prayer, but it turns pretty quickly. 
says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And religion often does this. It seems outwardly to be very humble and very God-centered and very others-minded, but at its heart it's about the self. And here, this man begins his prayer saying, God, I thank you, but turns quickly to himself. And it's like a wedding speech where it's supposed to be about someone else, but they end up just making it all about themselves and just go on and on. And he rattles off to God this kind of moral resume. It's like he's laying out here before God, God, look at all my qualifications. Look how good I am. He's almost inviting God to, to be a part of his own chorus of praise. And he says, I, I just thank you that I'm not like greedy people. I'm not like the unrighteous and so on and so forth. And even for good measure, he throws in a tax collector who is in earshot at this point. You almost imagine him praying, but Simi looking out to his side saying, and a tax collector. He lists off all the ways in which he's not like other people. And you notice it starts off about God, but then it's I, 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 me, me, me. See, religion is I obey, therefore I'm good. And before we move too quickly to judging him, even in a secular or irreligious culture like our own, it is a, a natural and almost universal human instinct to base our goodness and our worth on something that we do. The first question in a city like Sydney when you meet someone new, and if you've met someone new this morning, you've probably already asked it, is what do you do? And oftentimes our worth is in who we are. And if you believe that there is something that you have or possess that makes you good, it will also be the reason why you look down on other people. If you believe intelligence is what makes you good, then who do you look down on? The uneducated, those who haven't fulfilled their capacity or their potential, ignorant people. If you consider creativity the thing that makes you good and worth something because you're creative, who do you look down on? the sellouts, and the talentless. That's why you have to roll your eyes or make audible groans when you're sitting through something that is, is quite clearly beneath you. And afterwards, you have to share your opinion on it so that everybody knows that you weren't drawn in by something that was so banal and inane. If you believe that you're worth something because you work hard, who do you look down on? Who really gets under your skin? Cheaters, dole blood, I mean a current affair basically if you want the catalogue of things. <laughs> Dole bludgers or rich kids who live off their parents' inheritance, people who got away with it, who didn't have to work hard, who got away with things easily. If you believe that hard work is what makes you a good person, who do you look down on, those who don't work hard? If it's popularity, the sense that people like me or approve of me, who do you look down on? The awkward, the annoying, the boring, the unsociable, the uncool. If you believe it's your looks, who do you look down on? The unattractive, those who've aged and let themselves go. If you believe that family is what makes you good, that I'm a good parent, who do you look down on? Those poor ignorant parents who haven't read the right books, done the right things, educated their kids the right way. Or it's success. If that's what makes you someone or something, who do you look down on? The losers, the underachievers, the ones who don't get anything done in this world. It could go on and on and on. But the truth is we all have this propensity that if I do something and that makes me good, and I look down on those who don't, who don't measure up. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't feel any of this. In fact, I don't have the problem of being puffed up. For me, it's just constant self-recrimination. But it really is just the same thing, but inverted. See, the truth is, 
if you believe that something that you do makes you good, then when you're doing well at that, it will puff you up. But when you're doing poorly at it, it will bring you down. If you think intelligence is what makes a person worth something, but you're failing at your course or not achieving at your career, who do you look down on? Yourself. Whether that's hard work or popularity or, or body image, whatever it is, whatever the thing is that we think makes us valuable when we're not achieving it, it leads to constant self-recrimination. And so Jesus here has a message of hope for the performers out there, for those who believe that what makes us right before God and others is something that we do. Look what he says as he rounds out the story. In Luke 18.13 it says, But the tax collector far off, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Notice that everything he does is the opposite of the Pharisee. When he comes to pray, there is genuine humility. He can't even look up to heaven. And instead of swaggering up to God and saying, look at my moral resume, join me in praising myself, a long prayer of self-congratulations. Instead, it's a very short prayer, but it reveals how much he knows God and how much he knows himself. He just says, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Instead of spending all his time comparing himself to others, it's just him and God. And before a holy God, he can be nothing but humbled, and he says, God, just have mercy on me, a sinner. He knows what God is like. He knows who God is. That God is holy and cannot tolerate sin. That the punishment for sin is death and God's wrath forever. And he says, God, just have mercy on me. You know I've done wrong. I know I've done wrong. I know what I did and why I did it. And I know that you know it as well. But I'm just trusting that you will have mercy on me. And he gets it right. See, religion is any kind of attempt to solve the issue we have of guilt and shame by getting around Jesus and the cross. And there are many ways in which we do this. I don't know if you've noticed it, but people can get pretty angry online. And anything that's posted up, oftentimes people feel like it's their personal duty to let the world know how wrong this thing is and how important their opinion of this matter is. But it's not, it's not an accident. And in some sense, it's nothing new and that it's, a, uh, it's, it's something that humans have been doing for a long time. It's just we've got the tools to make it worse and worse. And so it's getting, getting you know, more and more obvious, but also more and more out of control. But why is it, and we know this in our own soul, why is it that we love to rage about something, to go on and on about something? Why is it that you might find yourself on a topic where you are so angry that you, almost, you can hear yourself becoming socially awkward in how far you're going on about it, you almost can't, you're like a kid running down a hill. You just can't stop yourself. You just keep going. The words are tumbling out of you. The reason for it is anger is a judging emotion. And when you judge something, you feel very righteous and very innocent because your focus is upon some, something in the world or someone in the world who is completely and utterly wrong. And the more righteously angry you can be about that, the more pure and clean you feel. And anger and rage and outrage can be addictive. And the reason for it is beneath it, there is this low humming anxiety or even knowledge that we ourselves are flawed and guilty and wrong. And being angry about something or someone else kind of gives us respite. 
It's an avoidance behavior. And as we rage about something else, we feel for a moment pure and clean and right. But as soon as the tirade is finished, that old feeling comes back and we need to fire it up again and again and again. And it's a wearying process. And not only that, it's wearying for your own soul, but it's wearying for the people around you. If you've been around someone who just rages about things constantly, it's exhausting. And the reason for it is, it's a band-aid solution to a genuine and soul-deep problem. That what we need is actual forgiveness. What we need is to be washed clean. What we need is to be made righteous, even though we ourselves have not been righteous. And so Jesus here ends the story with a message of hope. In Luke 18, 14, he says, I tell you that this one, and he's talking about the tax collector, I tell you that this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector, the sinner, goes home right with God, in right relationship with God. The one who asks for mercy receives it. It says he was justified, made righteous. The term is a legal term that would, would declare someone at the end of a trial, you were either justified or you were guilty. And here he says, this man has gone home justified. And the question is, well, how? How can a sinner who has committed wrong against God and against others be declared righteous by God? Well, this is Good Friday. This is the cross. That the wrath that this man prayed that he would be spared is actually poured out on Jesus. Come with me to Luke 23 as we read through before. It said two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots and divided his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When Jesus is crucified, he's completely innocent. And not only that, but he's going to the cross deliberately to take the penalty for sin for the very people who are crucifying him. And you imagine, what would someone who is being innocently crucified think or say? What would his posture be toward the crowd who are in front of him? Our natural instinct is for vengeance and justice, isn't it? If that were you, I imagine you'd feel the same. That what you would do is you would, you would want to rage against, you would want to use all of your power to enact vengeance on those who had unjustly put you up there. And yet when Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them. We don't have to worry or consider or imagine what it is that Jesus might think towards us as sinners. You can see it at the cross. His heart is compassion. 
that Christ doesn't wince at sinners and hide his face from them, but he's drawn to them. That the very reason he says that he came was to seek and to save the lost. He's not disgusted or repulsed by the sinner, but drawn to them in love and compassion. And even while he's on the cross, a guy starts a chat with him. <laughs> Jesus, has the, Jesus has the patience for a bit of casual banter while he's on the cross. But it's more than that. There's a theological discussion going on here. One criminal is mocking and saying, if you're the son of God, he joins the, mocking, the mockers who have put the sign up saying this is the king of the Jews. Because obviously anyone who is a king is not going to end up on a cross, right? And he joins the mocking. But the other one rebukes him and says, no, no, no. He gets what's going on. He's like, this is the son of God. He's the only one here who's not just innocent of this crime, but of any crime. He's not the one who's just innocent of this sin, but of all sin. And yet he's the one who's being crucified here for us. And he asks for mercy and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's accepted. And what's interesting here is there is no time left for this criminal to make any kind of recompense for his sin. There is no time left in his life to pay it back, or to do something that would make up for what he has done, or to go around and reconcile with those who he has hurt, all he can do is ask for mercy. And in this moment, Jesus offers it to him. Because Jesus is a compassionate God. He's more compassionate to us even than to ourselves. He loves us. He sees us as we are. He doesn't minimize our sin, or pretend it's not there, or deny it, but sees us as we are, and loves us, and would even die for us, and bear the wrath for our sin. And to the believer, Good Friday is the time to remember just how deep God's grace had to go to save you. And so here's a question. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you have been for some time, the issue in your following of Jesus is not going to be so much down the tax collector end, but probably at the Pharisee end. That the longer you are familiar with the message of the gospel and of grace, the more likely you are to fall into the kind of the Pharisee box where you start to think like, yeah, maybe a long time ago I had sin that God needed to deal with and I'm thankful that he did it back then, but right now I'm pretty good with God. And if that's you, don't miss the warning that's in this passage. See, the sign that religion has started to grip your heart is when you start to look down on others when you find it hard to have compassion on others, when you find it hard to see others as the same as you, that actually they're a different class to me, they are somehow more prone to sin than I am. And if that has started to happen, it's worth asking the question, if you don't understand the compassion of Christ, sorry, if you don't extend the compassion of Christ to others, have you really understood the depth of his compassion towards you? Because if you understand the gospel, the ground at the foot of the cross is flat. There are not righteous and unrighteous, the sick and the healthy. There are only sinners, and there are those who know it and those who don't. And there are those who are inclined to ask for mercy because they know they need it, and those who aren't. And so if you find that religious pride is starting to build up in your heart, Good Friday is a time to kind of reset the accounts and recalibrate your heart according to the gospel. You might see the world as Christ does. But it's also the case that if you're someone who tends to beat yourself up constantly, then in your mind, if, you, if your struggle is not at looking down on others, but on yourself, to remember that it's God who has declared you righteous. And who are you to stand before an almighty God and declare unrighteous what he has declared righteous? 
But if you trust in Jesus, your sin has been taken away and he has adopted you in and made you his own. And he has declared you his own. And he loves you like his very own child. We're called to see ourselves and the world according to the gospel. But if you are here and not sure about where you stand before God, can I ask you this question? Have you been running from God? If you're a parent, there is a very easy way to know who is the guilty party when something has gone down. If you hear crying in another room or anything like that, and you go in and one child flees, you can be pretty sure who's done the deed, right? And it's strange when you think about it because all of us as kids did it. We all heard mum and dad coming and then legged it without thinking like, where am I going? Unless, unless I'm leaving the city or the state, we're going to have the chat in the end. But there's an instinct in us. And I don't think it's the instinct to avoid punishment because I think even in the back of our minds we know, look, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen anyway. I think the instinct is there's a sense of shame. When you've done the wrong thing, there is this sense of don't look at me. I don't want anyone to see me. When there is on occasions a genuinely repentant criminal in a, in, in a court of law, you'll notice that they will hide their face. The last thing they want to see is the, the victim's family looking over at them. There is a sense of like, I just want to disappear. I don't want anyone to look at me. There's a sense of like, th- there is something about me that I don't want people to see. And I wonder if you've been running from God, whether that's how you imagine your relationship with God. You can't imagine that if he really saw you as you are, that there would be acceptance and forgiveness. That instead there would just be endless condemnation. That to come to Christ and to know him truly would mean a life really of just constantly bringing up the same thing, the sin over and over again. But that can't be true. Because look at the story Jesus told and look at how he treated the people around him. He loved sinners. He came for sinners. He died for sinners. And if you are a sinner, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus wants to meet. And so can I encourage you over this Easter long weekend, if you've not put your trust in Jesus, to trust in him and to know and have confidence that anyone who believes in him finds forgiveness eternal and everlasting. That the relationship is not a constant thing of Jesus bringing up all the problems that you had again and again and again. But once he forgives, he forgives completely and fully. And that ultimately, this is what our soul longs for. That to come to Jesus is to have a burden removed. There is not a sinner alive who has turned to God and asked for mercy and had the door shut in their face. That instead, the experience of the sinner in coming to Christ is like a weary traveler who finally finds their place of rest and removes their burden. That's why Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. I'm going to pray now that for those who trust in Christ, you will continue to have the gospel transform the way you love others and God. And if you haven't come to know him, that you come to know him even this weekend, even this day. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin in our place. We thank you that you look upon us with love and compassion, that there is not a sinner alive who is too far from your grace, that you cannot be redeemed, that all who look to you as the tax collector did and ask for mercy will find it. 
that like the criminal on the cross, that those who trust in Jesus to carry the burden of their sin will find their fears and guilt relieved. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who is struggling to know you, that they would reach and find you, and that they would find forgiveness and joy in Christ. And Father, for those of us who follow Jesus, may we not become proud like the religious Pharisee, May we be humbled by your grace. May we be like Christ our Savior, full of compassion and love. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.